to set the bell, the ringer applies a bit of extra force to the headstock and virtually catches the bell as it swings to the balance before resting it in its set position. Because of the way that the bells are rung, and the fact that the ringers wear ear defenders because of the noise, method ringing really isn't practical. Jonathan Williamson read out our teaser. Have you guessed where he's talking about? All will be revealed in this episode. For this and the next couple of episodes of Fun With Bells, we're doing something a little different. We've been collecting Ringer's stories of weird and wonderful bell towers. Stories, histories, hair-raising ways to access towers and challenging ringing rooms. First, you will hear a wonderful story of the bells and belfry of a city of London tower. My name is Dickon Love, tower captain of St James Garlic Hyde in the city of London. In 2012, we had a new ring of bells cast for the church. However, prior to hanging them in the tower, they were used to lead the Thames Diamond Jubilee pageant, where we rang a quarter peal on them as we chugged down the Thames, with Her Majesty a few boats behind us. It was because of this they were granted the title Royal Jubilee Bells by Buckingham Palace. When the time came to install them in the tower at St James Garlic Hythe, since this was the first time a full ring of bells had been installed here, a new frame had to be built. The tower wasn't entirely empty. A sitting in the middle of the tower and the proposed new belfry on its own stand was a large, beautiful wooden oak coffin. Around the sides were inscribed the words, Stop, stranger, stop as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. So pray, prepare to follow me. Lifting the lid of the coffin revealed the hauntingly smiling face of a man who had been dead for 200 to 350 years, beautifully mummified in its preservation, wrapped in a white cloth to preserve his modesty. This was Jimmy Garlic. We don't actually know his name, but with tattoos and an earring, it is supposed he worked on the nearby Garlic Wharf. Jimmy was first discovered in 1855 under the floor of the church. For years, the mummy, which is quite rigid, was a bit of an attraction. It is said that he used to be carried around the church by choir boys in jest. However, he used to be kept in an upright cupboard in the narthex of the church. It used to scare people who inadvertently opened the cupboard, and the church architect admitted to me that he screamed when he first came across it by accident. But it was later felt that a coffin would be more appropriate, and he was provided with this one and placed in the tower, none other by the experts in hauling things up and down towers. Who else? The Whitechapel Bell Foundry. Moving forward a few years, Whitechapel had to reverse the process, as there wasn't room for the Royal Jubilee Bells and dear old Jimmy. He was reverently lowered down through the trapdoors in the tower, despite the fact he could have just as easily been thrown over someone's shoulder as they walked down the staircase. And he was returned to his coffin in the boiler room, which we hastily renamed the crypt. The plan has always been to brick the coffin in, but this is yet to happen. Yet Jimmy is resting in peace, away from the prying eyes of tourists, while the Royal Jubilee bells ring across the skies above. Not all tower bells are situated in church towers, as in this episode explained by Simon Davis. The Powell family came to the Quex estate in North East Kent in the late 18th century. John Powell Powell was a very keen yachtsman and a very keen ringer. 
He was very keen on learning to ring on 12 bells, but the nearest centre of such ringing was in London, which was a very long way from Birchington at that time. He first offered to augment the bells at the local parish church of All Saints from 6 to 12, but it was a very small tower and this wasn't possible. So he did like most landed gentry would have done and he decided to build his own tower. So he built the Waterloo Tower. It was completed in 1819. The tower now rises from among core trees. It's very tall, a tall core of red brick with octagonal angle turrets and four low square rooms around the base with big stone pinnacles. It has cast iron battlements and the crowning glory is a slender openwork spire on flying buttresses inspired by the steeple of Faversham Church but made entirely from cast iron which at the time was remarkably daring. The twelve bells were cast by Thomas Mears II in 1818 and installed in 1819. To begin with, the four trebles were hung above the back eight, so the trebles were difficult to hear. And in 1951, the trebles were recast and the trebles have now been rehung below the back eight, which makes them more audible. The tower is approached across fields and ringers frequently find cows in their way. There is no direct footpath. The tower has an air of melancholy. It's effectively a mausoleum. The only lighting is by oil lamps and it's a very sombre place to ring. The tower is a testament to the vision of John Powell Powell and the bells are still regularly rung by the Quex Park Band. The next few readings are examples of church towers where getting access to the bell tower has its own set of challenges. Firstly, Rose Nightingale reads from Ernest Morris's book on Towers and Bells of Britain. The Church of St Mary, Launton, Oxfordshire. The approach to the ringing chamber is by an external iron ladder of 19 rungs, by which access is gained to what is merely a narrow opening in the wall of the tower. From this, a series of stone steps through the thickness of the wall leads to the ringing chamber door, a curious small one measuring only 4 foot 10 inches high by 1 foot 2 inches wide at the bottom, and only 1 foot 2 inches at the top. One has to enter sideways, head first, and leave, feet first, walking backwards with body turned sideways until the iron ladder is reached. This curious entrance was constructed over a century ago by the then rector. Formerly the bells were rung from the ground floor, and an internal ladder gave access to the room which now forms the ringing chamber. According to local tradition, a relative of a former rector, one Colonel Brown, had led one of the famous cavalry charges at Waterloo. He apparently never ceased talking of his exploits and became known locally as Waterloo Brown. One of his chief delights was to take a barrel of beer into the church on each anniversary of the battle for the refreshment of the ringers who rang on that occasion. The rector disapproved of this and so constructed the awkward means of approach to the ringing chamber by which it would be entirely impossible to introduce a barrel. Needless to say, there has been no record of drinking in the tower within living memory, and all the ringers of today are keen churchgoers. When the external approach to the ringing chamber was first constructed, a movable ladder was used. This had the great disadvantage of constantly being removed during practices by practical jokers, 
who delight in seeing one of the ringers lowered to the ground on a bell rope to find the ladder and therefore release his companions. The ringing chamber is very small, its internal dimensions being only 7 foot 7 inches, out of which works of the clock occupy a space 2 foot 8 inches by 2 foot in one corner, and the clock weight case in another, while the remaining two corners of this tiny room are taken up by an iron ladder leading to the belfry and by the entrance door. The rope circle, or oval as it is here, is only 2 foot 9 inches across its minor axis by 5 foot 9 inches at its major axis. It's possible to catch one's neighbour's sally on the opposite side of the circle, and all the ringers stand shoulder to shoulder with their backs to the walls on three sides of the tower. It was here on February the 18th, 1926, that the late Mr Edward Hymns of Bicester rang the second and third bells to a peal of Bob Minor in two hours 49 minutes. During the peal, the ringing was much criticised by the parishioners, there being a great deal of speculation as to which two bells Mr Hymns was ringing. It was well struck throughout, and no one guessed the correct pair. Normally, it would only have been possible to ring either the one and two, four and five, or five and six by reason of the position of the ladder leading to the belfry, and by the clock case. But on this occasion, the ladder was removed to enable Mr Hymns to ring the two and three. Since the above-mentioned peal, the approach to the belfry has been rearranged for the benefit of Mr F. Sharp, the present church warden and captain of the ringers, who frequently rings a pair of bells in touches and rising and falling in peal, but who has not yet aspired to ring a full 5,000 double-handed. When the tower was erected, around 1150, it was equipped with one bell of three and three-quarter hundredweights, also a sanctus of half a hundredweight. Two more bells, weighing between them 12 hundredweight, were added in 1416, and at the same time the original bell was recast. The inventory of the church goods made in 1553 states, Item, bells in the steeple and the science bell, and these existed down into 1701. What happened then is not quite certain, but either the three bells were recast into a ring of four by Richard Chandler of Drayton Parslow Bucks, which a tenor was added in 1712, or he recast them into a ring of five in 1701 and recast the tenor later. Chandler also recast the Sanctus in 1725. This bell hangs out of the east window of the belfry and is still used for its original purpose during Holy Communion services. The medieval bell frame for three bells was altered and adapted by Richard Chandler for five bells by the inclusion of pits for the two smallest bells placed diagonally to the older pits. This meant the second bell swung right into the south window recess and the fourth into the north window recess. The rope circle thus formed was most curious. The treble man rang with his back to the other ringers and facing the doorway leading down to the ladder and into the churchyard. The second ringer faced the south window while the third faced the southwest of the tower and each could see the rope in front of him only by taking a quick glance over his left shoulder. The fourth ringer was more fortunate as his rope came down in the centre of the chamber, but he could never see more than two ropes at a time without turning around. The tenor man had to face northeast and could not see any of his companions. No stays or sliders were fixed to any of the bells, and the steps were cut away in the tower wall for the tenor man to climb when he had the misfortune to let his bell go over a little too far. These bells existed down to 1907 when they were recast by Gillett and Johnson, 
who added a treble, making six, to the memory of Richard Thomas Staples Brown, a descendant of Waterloo Brown, before mentioned. At the same time, a new iron H-frame was erected. Later, the bells were overhauled and hung on ball bearings by Richard White of Appleton. The tenor is now 700 weight and £5 in B-flat. Richard Booth brings us up to date as he recollects his experiences of visiting the same tower. My memory of Launton is slightly different to what's described in what we've just heard, but not that different. You certainly go up an external iron staircase rather than a ladder, which is quite well fixed, so I think it's probably a different structure to that described. And you come up to a doorway in the side of the tower, which again is slightly larger than has been described, but it's not particularly big either. And you go in through this doorway into this tiny little ringing chamber, part of which, as already described, is occupied by the clock mechanism. So by the time you've got six people inside, it's very crowded. And a hot day, quite claustrophobic and humid. But you can't ring with the door open, we found. So we just took the door off its hinges and propped it up by the side of the tower until we'd finished, which at least allowed some ventilation while we rang. Neville Paling sent us a description of a tower that he used to ring in. Steve Johnson reads this out. Neville Paling describes the ringing chamber of St Mary's, Cottingham. The parish church of St Mary, Cottingham, lies in the East Riding of Yorkshire. It's a large church with a peal of eight bells housed in a large central tower of this cruciform church. Access to the tower is via a door to a turret on the north side of the tower. After climbing 75 steps, you find yourself in a small lobby, faced by a door into the actual bell chamber. If the bells are ringing when you arrive, it's very loud, and the salt on your eardrums. Access to the ringing room is through a lift-up trapdoor and a descent down a steep 12-rung ladder, which does have guide rails. The choice one has to make is to go down forwards or backwards. I rang here for 21 years before moving five miles away to the village of Walkington, where I'm the tower captain of All Hallows. Meanwhile, Krista Cordova tells us of a beautiful church with a very awkward access. The access to ring at Patrington, East Yorkshire, which has a nice, easy-going, 1,000-weight ring of eight bells, is described as not for the faint-hearted. Dedicated to St Patrick, this beautiful and elegant church, its 180-foot spire visible for miles around across the flat plain of Holderness, is known as the Queen of Holderness. The Church of St Augustine in Hedden is known as the King. The access to the ringing chamber is not straightforward and requires a certain degree of suppleness and a good head for heights. You begin in the choir vestry in the north transept, going up the spiral staircase in the corner. Then you come out of the turret into the fresh air, up the stone steps to the top of the sloping roof line of the north transept, climbing up to the apex. There you find a small door, which you have to crouch to go through, and then progress along the walkway, a crawlway if you're tall, to the central tower. Crouch down low, you've got open views to the floor below. But once in, the bells are really worth it.
This is a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Association of Ringing Teachers, ART. You can find out more at bellringing.org, where there are resources to support your ringing, to find out how to learn to ring, or to learn to teach. Now back to the episode. Whilst some belfries are difficult to get to, others are challenging in various ways once you get there. Dee Smith gets the ball rolling by telling us about some of these. Here are some comments from members of the Evie Diocesan Association of Church Bell Ringers on towers that they consider to be weird and wonderful. First of all, towers in the UK. Hale Weston in Cambridgeshire. I rang a memorable quarter peal of Stedman singles at Hale Weston. It has a wooden tower which has lots of movement. Ringers on bells one and two can't see each other. After pulling off, we were showered with Xmas decorations that had been left stored above us. At one stage, the tenor got pinched in the frame, missed a couple of changes and then had to catch up. Doddington in Cambridgeshire. Doddington has an almost vertical ladder to get to the ringing chamber. At the top, you need to do a right angle turn and almost climb through a small door into the ringing room. Bells three and four go through the cock case, which makes for tricky handling. Two of the ropes are crossed over, so the fourth ringer is standing behind the third. The rope of the two comes out of an angled chute into the ringing room. The second is mounted on a flimsy angle frame above the others, and currently the bolts are loose. I can't remember what the bells sound like, because we're too busy trying to control the bell and keep in place. Merton College at the University of Oxford. The interior of the anti-chapel of St John's College, Cambridge, is modelled on the interior of Merton, a big vault going up high into the tower. In the case of Merton, at the ringing level, there is a balcony with a wall about three foot high to protect you from falling down to the ground floor. There is a little wire handrail mounted on top. The bells are rung with two ropes along each side of the tower, so it's certainly a place for social distance ringing. For added value, the tenor has a box. Oundle in Northamptonshire. Oundle bells are certainly a challenge with the huge clock case and the clock weight that comes down onto the ringer of the second bell. Pembridge in Herefordshire. Pembridge is a big wooden detached tower where the bells are right above you. While you're ringing you can't see them but when you stand to the side and look up you can see the bells right above as there are no walls around them. There is just the open floor apart from the support beams below the bells. You can see the bells swinging through some of the slats if you stand away from the main circle. They are good fun, but incredibly loud, which you get used to just after half an hour. Here are some comments from further afield outside the UK. St Augustine and John in Dublin. It is an unusual tower. The ringing room layout is very much rectangular and the access up involves going up a tight metal spiral staircase over the organ pipes. You need to have a head for heights and please don't drop anything. Smith College, Amherst, Massachusetts in the USA. The bells are installed in an old ventilator shaft and the ringing room is relatively small with a concrete floor and was accessed by via a lifting grate. I rang there one very hot summer and there would be the thunderstorm earlier. Water come through the top of the tower past the bells leaving pools of water on the concrete floor. It was a bit like ringing a sauna bath, high humidity at over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Westminster Abbey at the Benedictine Monastery, Mission, British Columbia in Canada. In terms of a room with a view, this tower is dramatic. 
It overlooks the Fraser Canyon with the Rocky Mountains close by. The tower is accessed initially externally and then internally. I was able to ring with the monks one Sunday afternoon before Vespers. After we were ringing, the monks then put on their cassocks and went down to sing Vespers. Gordon Gray now tells us of his trip to a tower with a large impediment to ringing in it. When planning a ringing trip, I always try to include a quirky tower. So when visiting County Durham, I chose St Cuthbert's Church, which is just off the beautiful green in the village of Cotherstone, near to Barnard Castle. We found it was their scarecrow weekend, and we were met by a very realistic-looking model of a cleaner in the churchyard, complete with mop and bucket. But on to the bells. There are six bells in the tower, the heaviest of which is just over 700 weight. That's 360 kilograms. And they're of little interest to many ringers. But there's a large wooden clock case, five foot six tall, in front of the second bell complete with chime levers protruding from both ends and the necessary cables coming from them. There's a fixed ladder close to another rope and hanging clock weights close above the ringers. This made our ringing a strange, nervous but entertaining experience, with ringers trying to avoid getting tangled with the levers, the number two ringer having to stand sideways on a box and up on the tiptoes to watch the other ringers, and they were peering over the clock case trying to see her. And for our final story, Jonathan Williamson tells us of bells that are hung in a very unusual way. St Mary's Church, East Burgholt in Suffolk. The five bells at East Burgholt in Suffolk, with a tenor weighing 2,500 weight, are hung in a wooden cage in the churchyard and rung by hand without ropes or wheels. A mechanism on their headstocks fulfils the role of a stay and enables them to be set and locked in the up position. The first four bells are each on one side of the square frame, with the tenor hung in the middle. The bell cage was erected as a temporary structure to house the bells in 1531. The church tower was never finished and the bells have been there ever since. One story is that funding for the tower was promised by Cardinal Wolsey, but funds dried up when he fell out of favour with Henry VIII. Perhaps a more likely explanation, though, is that funding ceased because of the collapse of the local wool trade, while the church was being rebuilt. Each bell is rung by a ringer standing on a platform alongside the frame. I was lucky enough to have a lesson there in the 1990s. Once the bell is unlocked, it may be levered to the balance with one hand on the lip of the bell and the other braced on the frame. The bells are then pushed over the balance in turn to ring rounds. As the bell swings into its pit and the headstock rises, the ringer uses the hand that was on the frame to push the headstock down to maintain momentum. At first it's quite unnerving to realise that as you're pushing down on the headstock to bring the bell full circle, the bell itself is rising high above you. It's also vital to grasp the moving headstock well away from the edge, or there's a risk to your thumb as the headstock passes the frame where there's only a very small gap. Each ringer then turns to repeat the action with the other arm on the headstock as the bell swings the other way. Possibly the hardest thing is to move your body to the same rhythm as the bell so that hands and arms are not in the wrong place at the wrong time. To set the bell, the ringer applies a bit of extra force to the headstock and virtually catches the bell as it swings to the balance before resting it in its set position. Because of the way that the bells are rung, and the fact that the ringers wear ear defenders because of the noise, method ringing really isn't practical. 
It is, though, possible to ring call changes or to hunt the treble through the other four bells twice to add a bit of variation and return to rounds. All of this, of course, is highly skilled and potentially dangerous, and there have inevitably been the odd accident or two in the past. But with proper tuition, care and skill, the East Burgot bells continue to ring out regularly thanks to a dedicated band of local ringers. There are plenty of clips on YouTube of the bells being rung if you want to see how it's done. We will include a link to one of these YouTube videos as well as to photos relating to some of the other stories in the show notes on funwithbells.com. I hope that you have enjoyed these recollections. September's episode includes more stories, histories and bell ringing challenges. As always, my thanks go to Leslie Belcher, Anne Tansley Thomas and John Gwynne for their ongoing assistance with the podcast. Thanks go to Sue Hall for the original Fun With Bells artwork and the Cambridge Youths for the recording of their ringing. And a special thanks for this episode goes to Rose Nightingale for coordinating the collection of these recordings and to Steve Johnson for his technical expertise. And many thanks to all the people who submitted their readings and made the recordings. In the next episode of Fun With Bells... Many of the ropes are too close to the railings. Some are too close to each other. The front four ropes are almost in a straight line, making rope sight difficult. Finally, there is that large drop behind you, just the other side of the railings, to mess with your mind.